Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. And a special thank you to Andrew from Melbourne for his regular monthly donation. It really helps. If you'd like to make a regular monthly donation, go to www.diffusionradio.com and click on support or the PayPal button. Diffusion. International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, what to do about the influence of social experiences on the regulation of your genes. But first up, here's the news. Drug skyrockets from $14 to $750 per pill overnight. Hedge fund manager Martin Shkreli has found that he can raise the price of a generic anti-parasite medication by over 50 times because the American Food and Drug Administration have a loophole in the way they regulate medicines that has a side effect of stopping competition. The anti-parasite drug, pyrethmethamine, is marketed as Daraprim. It was invented in 1953, and its patent expired 20 years later, in 1973. Daraprim is the primary treatment for Toxoplasmosis gondii, the cat parasite disease that's the second biggest cause of death from food poisoning in America, where it affects tens of millions of people. Daraprim has become an important treatment for people whose immune systems have been weakened by AIDS or cancer, who then suffer badly from toxoplasmosis. It's also used as a treatment for malaria. The drug was a dollar per pill until Core Pharma hiked the price to $14 a pill in 2010. Then Turing Pharmaceuticals took it over in 2015 and raised the price to $750 per pill. Normally, when you make it cost $634,000 per year for people to take life-saving, unpatented medicine that costs just a few cents to make, the market will put you out of business as people choose to buy cheaper drugs from less greedy companies. However, there's a loophole in American law that lets companies bypass the market. The American Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, changed the way they regulate drugs. This means that a whole lot of older medicines that anyone could manufacture cheaply became orphaned because they hadn't had the clinical trials needed to comply with the new laws. They were grandfathered, which means they were still allowed to be sold. However, the FDA wants to encourage companies to bring orphan generic drugs 
into their new regulatory framework. They do this by rewarding companies that perform the clinical trials with an exclusive license. These exclusive licenses mean that nobody else can sell the drugs and it's illegal to import them to the US. It's a monopoly on a drug that's been out of patent for 40 years. Other companies who wanted a license to make or import pyrethmethamine in the USA would have had to buy some from Martin Shkreli's Turing Pharmaceuticals and conduct a test that proves that their drug and Daraprim are chemically identical pyrethmethamine. Turing Pharmaceuticals are able to refuse to sell to such organisations, killing any marketplace competition. Turing Pharmaceuticals have put in a unique system that stops hospitals from stocking pyrethmethamine in their community pharmacies. The drug is exclusively available through the Walgreens Specialty Pharmacy, which requires orders to be made on demand, 9am until 6pm Mondays to Fridays, to their Daraprim Direct program. The medication will be posted to the hospital for inpatients or mailed to a patient's home as an outpatient the following business day, with no service on weekends. One hospital treating a homeless man for toxoplasmosis had to readmit him as an inpatient to obtain his medication from Walgreens. If the hospital hadn't happened to have had a contract with Walgreens Pharmacy, he would have had to go without. Many Americans are voicing their unhappiness with Martin Shkreli in social and traditional media, even Hillary Clinton. His former pharmaceutical business, Retrofin, are suing him for tens of millions of dollars for financial irregularities when he was CEO. His response has been to come out loudly and proudly on social media. He responds insultingly to anyone on Twitter that criticises him and has been equally vitriolic answering questions on Reddit. $750 per pill for a drug that costs a few cents to make? Only in America. Only in America because the same drug is made in Europe, Asia and Australia enormously cheaper. But, due to this FDA-exclusive license, it's illegal for Americans to import it. Let's hope the Trans-Pacific Partnership doesn't extend the FDA-exclusive license around the world. Ape-suited TV is memorable. A team at Kyoto University in Japan have shown that chimps and bonobos are very absorbed by watching video of humans and people dressed in ape suits, interacting dramatically. The chimps and bonobos were annoyed by distractions when the show was on. Eye tracking showed that they remembered the key points in the videos and they anticipated what was coming when they saw them a second time. Dr. Kano and his team created two short films starring themselves. In the first movie, a person in an ape suit comes out from one of two identical doors and attacks one of the researchers. In the second movie, a human actor grabs either a foam hammer or a foam sword and uses it to get revenge on someone in an ape suit who has just attacked them. Both films were shown to six chimps and six bonobos, who were so riveted to the screen that they forgot to drink their juice. Am I the only one who thinks this might be a bad choice of subject for the chimps and bonobos to watch? Don't show them Planet of the Apes. Nobody should have to sit through that. On the second viewing of the first movie a day later, eye tracking showed that the chimps and bonobos remembered which of the two doors the person in the ape suit would come from, and they focused their attention there. They'd remembered the events of the film. While watching the second film again, 
the apes looked in anticipation at the object they knew would soon be used as a kind of weapon, even when the researchers cheated and placed the object on the left instead of on the right. The chimps and bonobos remembered and acted on a single experience instead of being conditioned to respond over many experiences. They remembered the object used as a weapon, not just where the object was. These movies are based on the kind of less violent videos that have been shown to baby humans to work out what they understand and remember. This research helps the scientists understand what sort of high-level thinking and remembering non-human primates are able to do. The paper was titled, Great Apes Make Anticipatory Looks Based on Long-Term Memory of Single Events, and was published in the journal Current Biology. Amazingly, the full paper can be read easily online. In a prior study, Coco the gorilla was known to tear up at a sad scene in her favourite movie, Tea with Mussolini. I kid you not. The scene in the film is when a young boy has to say goodbye to all of his friends and family to take a long train trip. In the YouTube clip of Coco watching the movie, you can see her signing Frown, Sad, Cry, Bad, Trouble, Mother and Coco Love. She was plainly able to understand and remember the emotional content of the film. I'll put the Ape Suit videos and the video of Coco watching her favourite movie on the webpage for this episode. Dr. Kano and his team next hope to test whether or not the animals understand that others have beliefs, desires, intentions and perspectives that differ from their own. Does this mean that they'll be watching soap operas of people in ape suits? Or will they be watching reruns of the 1970s spy parody Lancelot Link, Secret Chimp? Lancelot Link, Secret Chimp Listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. First, there was genomics, telling us that the genes we inherit shape our body. Then came epigenetics, showing that the environment and experiences of our grandparents and parents could add markers that influence the regulation of the genes we inherit and change our bodies. Now, there's human metagenomics. Steve Cole is a professor of medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. 
He's a genomics researcher who studies how everyday life influences what our genes do in our bodies. Last week, he outlined how feeling alone and unsafe releases chemical signals that switch our immune system from antiviral to inflammatory, causing inflammatory disease and vulnerability to viral infection. I began by asking him in this second part of the interview, how do we make people feel safer in a world where politicians and everyone else is trying to scare them all the time? Well, that is a great great question. And that is, if you will, the question of the day in human social genomics. So in the last five to ten years, we've learned quite a lot about how threat and misery in general get converted into disease. And the the big question at hand right now is really, what can we do about that? So there are a few instructive model situations that we can look to for inspiration. One is when we go into the laboratory after this kind of epidemiology and we say, okay, how is this working physiologically? We don't sit there and try and do psychotherapy on the mice. We give them a drug that blocks the interaction between a neurotransmitter from fight-or-flight stress responses and the receptors on cells that trigger the signal transduction machinery that activates these patterns of gene expression. So one simple, very effective you know, sort of incorrigible from a scientific perspective, uh, answer is you just drug these systems in ways that prevent them from causing you these adverse molecular responses. It doesn't change the misery of life. It doesn't change the adversity of the experience in your mind. It can just block your white blood cells from listening to that experience and throwing up this inflammatory response. But I don't necessarily think that just drugging everybody, you know, putting beta blockers in the drinking water is the right way to manage these things. So that brings up, you know, sort of more a big question of, of social philosophy and to some extent some, some empirical questions that arise from that. Obviously, we would love to be able to restructure everyday human social existence so people did not feel chronically stressed and threatened and uncertain all the time. The difficulty is that that sense of unease turns out to be highly culturally productive in a really unfortunate way. I mean, that is part of why, uh, you know, sort of market economies with all of their uncertainty and competition have been so effective at every form of cultural production ranging from economics to art. So it's not necessarily realistic that we would just be able to go out and produce some kind of idealized perfectly comfortable, you know, sort of, if you will, communist beautiful vision of, of you know, in, enduring perfect comfort on, on everybody's part. So then the question becomes, if we live in environments that are themselves at least inherently somewhat, you know, sort of jangling to our nerves, what can we do in that kind of a context, short of, of taking the, the proverbial drugs that I just described? And there seems to be right now two to three basic answers to that from, from studies of human beings confronting adversity. Uh, one of the best models for this kind of thing is people who've been diagnosed with an early stage cancer, a, a stage one breast cancer, for example. Stage one breast cancers are not going anywhere. They're the size of your pinky. They're not going to take over your body. The great thing is you're, you're generally, largely, uh, free of, of any serious disease risk. Yet, it is technically a cancer, and every human being who hears that they have cancer, you know, most of us cannot discriminate. Oh, stage one, almost no risk of long-term 
health adversity. We think we have cancer and we're going to die. So there's a tremendous burden of anxiety uh, that comes from that experience. So this context is a great opportunity to ask how can we help people confronting that kind of anxiety or adversity adapt to that situation in ways that don't then have stress biology creating a greater risk of the disease than the cancer event itself. So there's a number of things that have proven effective in those circumstances, ranging from cognitive behavioral therapies where they create exercises where people try and, you know, sort of reason their way through how serious this threat is. They develop practices for reducing physiological anxiety. You can think of this as sort of, if you will, contemporary psychotherapy. And this works reasonably well. There's been a number of studies now showing that people confronting adverse life circumstances like that, when given cognitive behavioral stress management interventions, do show small but detectable reductions in these adverse gene expression profiles. Some other things that have worked quite well on a regular basis include meditative or contemplative practices, mindfulness-based stress reduction, possibly compassion-based meditation as well, seem to, at, at this point, have two or three studies under their belts that, that suggest they're quite productive as well. And actually, physical well-being practices like Tai Chi or yoga, the kind of the exercise version of, of contemplation, also come with similar kinds of favorable shifts in gene expression, particularly reductions in inflammatory gene expression. So those are some of the things that are getting traction right now that we can talk about with a, a, a reasonable degree of confidence because we've gotten to the point where we're doing randomized controlled trials of these things. We're running real experiments so that we know that these kinds of protocols or procedures or practices actually cause changes in gene expression in, in human beings. There's a number of other things that are on the horizon. We can see them in correlational studies. They're not yet ready for prime time in terms of do we know how to make these states happen for people? And then if we make these states of mind happen, can we see causal consequences in changes in, in gene expression? But they look like relatively large and, and provocative effects when we look at them correlationally. One of them has to do with having a sense of purpose or meaning in one's everyday life. Uh, that is associated with a surprisingly favorable profile of gene expression in a simple inter-individual comparison way. In other words, people who have high levels of purpose and meaning uh, in their lives, who are living for something uh, beyond their own immediate self-gratification, tend to have more favorable gene expression profiles. Now, in a number of studies, this has been seen. A second thing has to do with people's ability to feel, if you will, connected to others in their community. This sense of social support, social engagement, embeddedness within a, a local culture or within humanity uh, as, a, as a whole uh, has, uh, in a number of studies, proven uh, quite favorably associated with gene expression as well. The challenge in both of these situations is we don't really have a very good recipe for changing people's sense of purpose and meaning in everyday life or changing their sense of embeddedness in humanity and their sense of trust in humanity and their sense of warm connectedness to the rest of the human race. It's a hard thing to snap your fingers and make that stuff happen. 
it sounds like something that should be informing government policy as well, because it looks to me at the moment that government policy is trying to engender the exact opposite to all the things you're saying are good for our health. Well, that is a, a very good point. And uh, I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of what we're seeing now at the, the sort of molecular genetic level, our ability to draw connections between social and cultural and, and what are essentially sort of political and policy level variables in everyday human life. And what's going on in the molecular underpinnings of bodies. We used to think about that kind of as a black box, as a conjecture that somehow if social conditions or policies were associated with differences in disease risk, that must somehow turn into biology somewhere for these diseases to come about. But it was very hard to actually walk policymakers, politicians, and, and leaders of, of every sort through the whole sequence of events that got us to diseases. And there were so many things happening over the course of a life that when someone finally gets a disease when they're 60 or 70 or 80 or 90, it's very difficult to map that back onto a particular set of social or political conditions earlier in life. So it was harder to make the connection. What's, I think, transformative about the moment that we're in is our growing ability to look at the biology of disease before it's a real diagnosis, before it is a plaque in your coronary artery or a hole in your brain tissue, and say, this is a body that is running as if it is scared and threatened. And we know if we let this run long enough, statistically, this will produce much higher numbers of cases of cancer and neurodegenerative diseases and heart attacks and that sort of thing. So we can look at that now. We can see the molecular precursors of disease long before we can actually see the disease diagnosis itself. And so we can draw much tighter connections between cultural, political, policy, social conditions and how people are living as a result of that. So our ability to do this in the laboratory is now pretty secure. And I think the big transformative moment now is can we start moving that ability to take the molecular biology of everyday life into account within policymaking arenas. Well, Steve Cole, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was genomics researcher Professor Steve Cole explaining the problem of the social influence on the regulation of human gene expression and what we should do about it. And finally, from the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, Stephen Tridgell from the Sydney University Maker Club had a light harp on display. I began by asking him about the new club. Hi, I'm uh, Stephen Tridgell from the Sydney Uni Maker Club. We're a student-run club dedicated to making things. We started up this year. We have got funding from the uni for a lab, which has some 3D printers, oscilloscope, power supply, function generator, some and just a general space as well for students to be able to make whatever they want, really. And what sort of things have you brought to the Maker Fair? Today we've got a laser harp, which was made by one of my friends at Sydney Uni. It was made for Vivid Festival, so we're just reusing it today. So it's got 15 lasers instead of strings, and it's attached to an Arduino, then a laptop, which interprets the strings and plays sound. It has a graphic as well. 
Do you have other things on display there? We also have a photo booth, which I made for my wedding and for 200 bucks rather than the thousands, which it costs to hire. So we're, the, the aim of the club is to enable students to work on what they want to work on outside of the curriculum. There's a, a lot of practical skills which are hard to fit into a structured lectured course. Just playing with hardware, doing, doing projects, enables you to really improve your understanding by applying it in practice. Where would people find you online? We have our website, sydneyunimaker.club. Yeah, and we've also got a Facebook group and a mailing list, so all, all that detail is on our website there. If you're a Sydney Uni student listening, please come and join us. Membership is free and we're not associated with the union, so you don't even need an access card. Terrific. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Stephen Tridgell from the University of Sydney Maker Club. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvellous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook, rate us on iTunes and tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby-Kerengai, two NVR in Nambaka Valley, two X in Canberra, and three NBR in the Mallee Borders districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about the topics in this week's show. If you enjoyed this show, then you may like to explore the 700 previous episodes that are archived on diffusionradio.com, where you can check out the shows indexed by keywords and listen to just the ones that interest you. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Lancelot Link, secret chimp. Stands for justice, he has no fear, he's the 